Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Welcome back to another great episode of The Nuclear View. we got a great topic for you today. Of course, I'm Adam Lowther, and we have Jim Petrosky and Curtis McGiffin. Of course, our, the leadership team here at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. And today we are going to talk about missiles, 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 and defending missiles. Now, I got to admit, guys, uh, there was a great article by Congressman Mike Turner that said we need more missile defense. Now, I was a bit shocked when I saw this article because... You know, I've been on the Arms Control Association's website a lot lately and on Federation of American Scientists and a few other places. And I'm they keep telling me that ICBMs are completely and totally irrelevant. But yet I, I read Congressman Turner's article and he tells me we need more missile defense to knock down Russian, North Korean and Chinese ICBMs. And that that's the greatest threat we're facing. And I'm, I'm, I'll be honest with you, I'm confused. I thought these ICBMs were irrelevant and that we were foolish for having them and building new ones. But yet I'm being told otherwise. So, Curtis, do you want to jump in and explain to me what is the deal with these irrelevant ICBMs and why do we need to be able to knock them down with ballistic missile defenses? Well, thanks, Adam. Uh, you know, um, I really uh, was taken a bit aback by the Congressman Turner uh, op-ed because of his statement that our nuclear arsenal is no longer a deterrent to nuclear attack. Um, and I just uh, really was kind of bugged by that assessment uh, because uh, um, I just don't agree with that. And I think uh, his point in here is he gets into this idea that deterrence is dead. If deterrence is dead, then the concept of mutually assured destruction is obsolete and comprehensive missile defense must be revisited as an essential capability to protect our citizens. And so when we look at this idea of deterrence, we see this through uh, what I call the pain paradigm. This is Dr. Keith Payne wrote a book a couple of years ago called Shadows on the Wall. And he laid out this idea that, that when it comes to deterrence, there are easy deterrence thinkers and there are difficult deterrence thinkers. And the easy deterrence thinkers see uh, deterrence easy because they believe that it is um, uh, largely uh, benefited to smaller arsenals that that are that are large, and that essentially nuclear war really won't ever happen, and uh, because all of our adversaries behave predictably and prudently, and so therefore it will never happen, and so we don't need defenses and some of these other kinds of mechanisms or low yield weapons and these sorts of things. On the difficult deterrent side, they uh, they assess, they assess a couple of things. One of them is is hey. Uh, not all of our adversaries behave prudently and predictably. And I can just think of a few here within the last year uh, that we could use in his, as examples. Uh, and therefore, you must tailor your deterrence to each one of these adversaries and how they behave and how they might react. Uh, 
And along with that, you must also prepare for the fact that deterrence might fail. And if it's going, and then how would you deal with that failure if that happens? And you would do that through damage limitation in order to fight a nuclear war, reestablish nuclear deterrence afterwards, and move forward. That damage limitation comes in the form of ballistic missile defense, as an example. Um, others are, say, civil defense, anti-submarine warfare, and other types of resiliency activities, and so forth. And so that ballistic de missile defense is part of deterrence and is also recognized as a tool of deterrence by denial, which is to say to the adversary, uh, your attack uh, won't be fruitful because we will prevent it. It is an obstacle to your success and opens you up for that actual retribution um, that might be might be born in that form of mutual uh, vulnerability and mutual assured destruction. So I say this only that if this is what Congressman Turner believes, then I would please invite Congressman Turner and those around him to come take some of our courses here at the NIDS Academy and learn a little bit more about how deterrence works. Well, I'm just looking forward to I'm I'm sure he's got an article that'll be coming because I'm deeply concerned about the mineshaft gap. That is what I'm concerned about is the mineshaft gap. Yeah, don't look at me like that, Jim. If you don't know about the mineshaft gap, you obviously haven't watched Doctor Strange Love in a while. So that was a problem, and I still think it's a problem today. So I'll turn it over to you, Jim. Stop shaking your head about my real problem and go for it. Let, let's talk missile. Let's talk about missile defense. Yeah, yeah. Thank, thank you, Adam, and I appreciate you providing me a relevant ref, ref, uh, a reference <laughs> to this uh, important topic. Uh, given that I, even though I'm a nuclear guy, I have yet had the time to watch Doctor Strange Love, but that's okay. I get the gist of the movie, and I think the last line is really the important piece, anyway, for anyone that's ever listened to it. And I've been told to me many times. So let me take a little bit of deference to my uh, my good friend, uh, Curtis, here. I thought this was a, a, a good article. I I liked reading it. I'll tell you why in a bit. Um, uh, because I had a different takeaway. And my takeaway was that if we don't keep an eye on our, if, if, if we don't keep an eye on and expand our missiles and our missile defense, they no longer are a deterrent. If we get outnumbered, and out and, and outmaneuvered by our, our adversaries, um, then this becomes an issue. And in fact, I'm not just backing up Congressman Turner because I'm in his district and our headquarters is in his district. <laughs> uh, that has no play in this whatsoever. But uh, I do agree with Curtis. It would be good to have uh, Congressman Turner or his some of his staff come in here and talk about this to give us the insight on that, because that was my takeaway. And so uh, I would say also what was valuable in this is at least reading this article that uh, oftentimes we look at our senior leaders and our leaders of the country and we say they don't really look at the topic broadly. And I do believe that at least the, the congressman and his staff have looked at this uh, issue uh, in a variety of terms, uh, albeit Curtis does, you know, if, if the direction is the missiles are no longer needed, that's a different issue. Or do we need more? And we need to make better missiles and, and include the technologies. And so I want to back up and say, as, although I'm an engineer, as Adams pointed out many times, I am not a rocket scientist. 
Although I did <laughs> teach at a university who's, uh, when we were sitting in a room with many people, we couldn't come up with something to, to say, well, it might take a rocket scientist because I was surrounded by those kind of people. Uh, and that was the Air Force <laughs> Institute of Technology. So I want to go back and at least uh, sort of hit on a, a piece of what Curtis was sort of talking about in that we have a missile structure, but the adversaries are, are missile defense and, and, and developed missiles, especially ICBMs. But our adversaries are coming up with ways to defeat either defenses or defeat even the missiles themselves. And I wanted to talk about that, that concept because I think everyone thinks, oh, it's just a missile, it's a missile, it's a missile. And in fact, two episodes ago, we talked about missiles in somewhat detail. And so if you look at the strategy behind defending against missiles, you know, one is survivability. And survivability is okay. This is why we put missiles underground so they're survivable and we cover them with a very, very robust cap. And we spread them out on a field so single nuclear weapons aren't capable of taking them out. That's the sort of the strategy behind it. But keeping the missile from hitting is really the, the sort of the, the main desire. If you can keep the missile from hitting its target and arriving at its target, uh, and of course, deterrence is keeping it from being launched, which I think we've been doing quite well because um, none of them have been fired at us yet with nuclear uh, tips on them. So deterrence has been working. But in the pre previous to our adversaries changing their techniques and tactics and their technology. So I like my three T's better than what most people use. The technology there is that previously ballistic missiles could be simply sensed on launch. We would know their boost phase. They would boost into the air, taking off, and they would provide a trajectory. And once they got into that trajectory, trajectory, <laughs> um, then we would be at a point where we could figure out exactly where they were going to land and nowhere to intercept them. And there was time to do this because they launched up into space, then they came back down. And so in that boost phase versus a drift phase versus a relaunch phase back into the atmosphere, there were a reentry phase. During those, uh, those processes, we could figure out where they were and be able to intercept. And that gave us time and it gave us accuracy on interception. However, our adversaries now are developing technologies such as hypersonics, such as guided missiles, and of course, cruise missiles that can be guided and change their direction. And, uh, and when, when you can change direction quickly or on the move or respond with artificial intelligence, by the way, I was glad Congressman Turner brought this up, that we need artificial intelligence built into our systems because we cannot respond fast enough, then... Uh, then they can thwart us by using that artificial intelligence and we must use the same kind of decision-making as a way of interacting with them. And I was thinking about today, you guys had, had hit me before the show and said, think about this. I was out today in my barn and I don't know if any one of our listeners uh, have these problems, but we have those big carpenter bees and they fly around and dig into your wood. I can't, I, I dislike them. So when I'm outside, I have a racquetball racket and I smack them down with my racquetball racket, but I have to wait until they're perfectly still because my influence for my racquetball racket's big. But if those bees are moving and left, right, up and down, I cannot hit them. I have to be able to maneuver faster than they can. And I can't, but as soon as they're still, as soon as I can predict where they were, they're gone. 
And so this is the problem that we have right now in missile defense. We have a problem when our adversary develops missile techno- technology that can maneuver and change direction, and we can't predict it quick en- quickly enough. And that's why, in at least the way I read this article, we need more missiles. So if you get six through and we have 10, you're getting four back. And we know where you are as well. And so in that, in that vein, that's what I took away from this article, a little different from Curtis's thoughts. And I'd like to go back to Curtis and say, what, what are your thoughts on that from a deterrent standpoint? So Jim, fantastic. So let me clarify that I, that I, understood, that I heard what I heard from you is that your, your takeaway is we need more ICBMs to, to retaliate with, assuming that mm-hmm. they'll hit ours. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. That's fair. Uh, that's fair. Uh, I understand what you're saying, and and I I agree with you. I think part of the guaranteed quote unquote second strike that is the very basis of the easy deterrence thinkers, uh, and it's very hard to define what guaranteed means, right? When we're talking technology and resilience <laughs> and survival, there's always a risk. There's always a risk. Yikes! How do you guarantee that you'll survive? Your weapons will survive a nuclear weapon. Uh, a nuclear strike and then be able to retaliate. So that is a challenge. And so, um, uh, and I have heard Congressman Turner ask questions recently in, in the uh, committees about whether or not we, are we looking at the possibility of needing more ICBMs uh, in order to counter the, the growing threat in China. And, and now we have to consider North Korea um, as we move forward. That And Iran. If, yeah, and Iran. And that, that these ideas that a ground-based interceptor uh, based out of the West Coast is somehow going to to prevent uh, or deter, um, I don't think is working. Uh, uh, Kim Jong-un um, and, and, and Adam laid this out last week, uh, just how little money uh, North Korea has spent on their nuclear capability. And now they're you know purported to have 11 ICBMs that can reach the United States, which is the, the number where they sort of, uh, uh, break the mold here um, and require now more interceptors to, to put them down, uh, which just shows you just how cheap it is for offense over defense when we're talking about a nuclear deterrence and the ability to coerce and hold at risk America's arsenal. Yeah, I, you know, I'd also say the, the other piece that you see in the, in, in the article as well, and I, I think is alluded to here, is to capture capture these missiles, the, the adversary's missile um, uh, launches, their their aggressive action in all phases, to include launch phase. And you're going, how in the world do you know launch phase happened? Well, this infers intelligence, okay, and and persistent surveillance. And interpretation of what your aggressive, what the aggressive organization or, you know, what your aggressors are thinking at the time. And that's not an easy task. And most people miss that. They think, oh, you just got to intercept the missile. If I can keep, if, if I know you're launching it and I can hit it on the ground, you know, we talk about, you know, that's the best place to hit it. I mean, if I was going to spread nuclear debris all over the place, I'd like to do it on someone else's soil and not so over mine. Is that advocating a first strike then? 
Uh, could be if call we counter force, so, right? <laughs> so, well, so, so it depends on, so you're right, uh, Curtis. And, and I've been, I actually looked, so you, you talked to me about this last week, I think on our, on our uh, a podcast and I went back and look, you get into a gray area when you talk about first strike, if someone is determined to launch, we talked about AI, when someone decides they're going to launch, is that when the missile comes out of the tube or is that when they begin to start inserting all the appropriate switches and numbers and everything else to launch? Uh, Good question. There's the gray area. But, you know, if I can, uh, let me pull it back a little bit because I want to. Taking all the fun out of it, Adam. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, he, Turner ends his article and he says, ultimately we can achieve President Reagan. President Reagan's vision of a world free from the threat of mutually assured destruction at the hands of tyrants and rogue actors. So, you know, he's arguing that missile defense, you know, we need more of it. We need Chrome Dome. We need all these capabilities. But the challenge of it is, you know, it's I, I, I think of it. You know, I was trying to draw the analogy today and I was thinking to myself, I was a whenever I went to school at Alabama, that was when Alabama was that winning explains it. was winning football <laughs> games ten to seven or seven to three or seven to nothing because they had the best defense. And then you get this guy named Nick Saban, and he comes in and he puts in a pro style offense, and then you're scoring thirty five points a game on average or more. So he goes from a you know, strong defense to a really competent offense. And then he he's won six national titles at Alabama. And so he's proven that offense, you know, reigns. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't want any defense, right? We're not Texas Tech. We're not Oklahoma State. We, we still want a good defense. But, you know, the focus is on the offense. And I think it's similar with missile defenses where the focus should stay on, you know, the offense, but you create, you know, it's like whenever you had missile defenses for the ICBM fields, you can push even with a 20% probability of kill, you can push the requirement from, you know, two warheads per launch facility up to four warheads per launch facility. And therefore you change the calculation. And that's sort of the utility I see in missile defenses as opposed to, you know, SDI, where, you know, Reagan, if you've read, there's a great couple great books on Reagan's view. And he was literally thinking that we could shoot down everything such that we had an absolute missile shield. And I don't know if that's I don't think that's what Congressman Turner's advocating. I think he's sort of saying, hey, if we can shoot down enough then we, we, you know, we have deterrence by denial or dissuasion because we can dissuade them from attacking in the first place because they don't know if we'll get 20% or 40% or whatever. And so that's sort of the question for me is, is that a good calculation, Jim? Yeah. Yeah. So um, going back to, you know, my stance on, on this article, you know, in the article, in the, in the uh, article that uh, Congressman Turner wrote, he, he made sure he highlighted it, you know, um, that our adversaries are deploying, you know, uh, ground-based, you know, uh, systems, et cetera. 
to be able to launch, you know, I go back to Curtis's, you know, whack-a-mole theory where you make it so that your adversary has no single target. And then you even further that by providing a robust defense system. So there's no assurance of getting through. And the combination of those two, both I can't get through and I can't find all the targets. So even if I can get through, I don't get all the targets. I mean, this is the whole idea of the triad. And so it works really well that way. And I, and I, I just saw that in this article. And again, maybe I'm just, I, I tried to read it a little, a uh, little more leanly than, uh, than, than Curtis did, but those things all came out in this article. And then I'll, I'll let Curtis speak. But the last thing, when, when I went to RPI, uh, the only defense that we really were worried about was our PhD defense. We never thought about football or anything else like that. So we had other priorities. Curtis? Well, it, well at those trade schools, I don't think they play football. So I don't no, know. No, they don't. They don't play school at, at these trade schools. You're exactly right. So, so to give deference to our our great listeners in Texas and Oklahoma, uh, <laughs> you know, well, uh, they they know that Oklahoma State and Texas Tech don't play defense. Is, is great. So let's uh, let's let's uh, argue this. Obviously, ballistic. What, what, what Jim, you're describing is the 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 essence of difficult deterrence. The think the difficult thinkers that say that no deterrence is difficult uh, because I need all of these different things in order to deter the essence of the argument that if we're at risk, if we want to deter low yield use, that we need to have a low yield weapon because we otherwise, if you respond with a high yield weapon, that's not deterrence, that's escalation, right? And so we have to uh, see this through the whole thing and, 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 and ballistic missile defense and uh, necessarily complicates Right, the the decision calculus of the adversary and the targeting calculus of the adversary. So, so I'm with you. It's also a convenient excuse, uh, many say, uh, for uh, the Russians' development or to or to develop novel weapons, um, and um, and hypersonic weapons is one of them, where they can maneuver at great rates, at great speeds, and uh, in order to complicate ballistic missile defense. Uh, tracking and interception, um, and thus increasing their chances to hold our targets at risk, but in my mind uh, is an, is a destabilizing activity, right? Because now you make first strike uh, capability uh, more possible. Right? Not, no, I'm not saying probable, I'm saying possible. And if at some point in time the adversary determines that it is more advantageous for them to go first um, in order to to get everything uh, on you know, to kill all of us, uh, so to speak. Uh, then then that's that's what we have to prevent. We have to take maneuvers. We have to make investments, and we have to commit to the deterrence formula of capability. And I add capacity to that. Uh, in times the American will, the promise. You know, what we talked about last week that the President Biden's promise in this case to South Korea. Um, and then the adversary has to perceive that to be credible. In other words, they have to fear it. And if they do that, we get at the end of that equation deterrence. And with that, I say stability and peace. It's a lot of work. It ain't cheap, but it requires commitment. 
Yeah, and 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 I I want to add one other thing, and again, this goes back to the technology. You know, and I always I always address it from an engineering standpoint that with every key comes a lock, with every lock comes a key. So when we get into the hypersonic weapons and we get into steerable, maneuverable uh, uh, missiles that are traveling, yes, they pose a new problem, but they also open the door to other problems. For example, providing you know a, 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 a an aircraft that has electronics that now could be uh, could possibly be uh, intercepted the electronics. We could destroy, you know, the capability of the radar or the system that's maneuvering it, uh, communicating with it uh, because of the aerodynamics that you require for a hypersonic vehicle. Um, the environment can be changed. We can change the environment through which it's flying. Uh, you know, large blast wave, large thermal wave, large radiation wave, which we can produce. There are many different new avenues that you don't have with a ballistic missile. Ballistic missiles in context with these are simple. And for everyone that knows, when you go from a simple to a more complex system, you open vulnerabilities. And so this is the, this is the other area that I think the United States must explore to stay ahead of our adversaries as they begin to develop different types of weapons. We have to stay ahead of that. That's where the technology, the innovation and the exploration need to be. And so that, you know, too many times I've heard people, hypersonics, throw your hands in the air. We're all doomed. We're all going to die. That's not true. We've got so many other toys now to play with as a way of deterring the adversary. But like Curtis says, we need to prove that we can do this and make them afraid to use this technology because they're not sure it's going to work. And if it doesn't work, then bad things are going to happen to them. Well, you know, I mean, there was an article this past week that said that uh, the Ukrainians shot down a Kinzhal, you know, one of their new hypersonics with a Patriot three, I think it's a pack three. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, may you know they are these hypersonic systems are not as fast as ballistic missile systems are considerably slower, but you know they still have, like you said, the maneuverable element to them. And it's best I can tell from you know looking at this stuff daily. We're we're in that sort of period where it's uh, you know where we're not quite sure what the state of play is, and but. You know, how frequently was it a lucky shot that took out the, the Kinzel? Was it is it something we can do regularly or the, the Ukrainians, sorry, that they can do regularly with our technology? Uh, I don't think anybody quite knows that yet. Well, let me add to that. I think it's fantastic uh, that you brought that up. You know, there was just a, 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 an article out, I think, today. Uh, that there's a bunch of scared scientists and researchers in Siberia right now. They're all being <laughs> rounded up for subversion against the state because their missiles aren't working. Um, and um, and uh, and some, I think, some fear, maybe some some technical data spillage that maybe the West is now aware of, or something along those lines. I, I, uh, the article is a bit nebulous in that, but the point is, is that. Um, recently, some of these systems may not have behaved in a manner of which the Russians have told the world that they would, which might mean be why that they're shooting them down. Uh, of course, the Russians deny that we've shot any of these down, I think. Um, and they are claiming to have destroyed a, a Patriot battery, which means 
ballistic missile defense is a target that must now be, you must defend the defender, right? Yep. <laughs> in this case. And that is something that you have to, you know, obviously have into your calculus um, as, as well. Uh, one other side note was that I think some of these Kinzels that they found, um, they were able to tell that some of them have been built like within the recent weeks or months. I mean, they are fresh uh, and they might be leaving out some of that secret mojo. You never know. Yeah, it's that, that's rather interesting. You know, it, you know, Adam, I'll get back to you, Adam, here in a second. But you, know, you said, well, maybe we get lucky or not. And I had to reach over to my bookshelf and pull out a book called the Decisive Battles of the USA by uh, Major General Fuller. And inside this book, there's uh, uh, 11 different battles that are described here. And the secret sauce in each one of these is you have well-trained, well-outfitted people, and then they got lucky. And they got lucky because they were well-trained and well-outfitted. And when the luck happened, they were able to take advantage of it. And that's a piece of this that we often don't think of in, in, with respect to this. Now, don't get me wrong. We don't want to just be lucky. But if you're well-trained and well-outfitted, you got all the tools in your, in your side, then, then, then your chance of taking advantage of your luckiness is much better. It's a great is that, book, by the way. Is that creating our luck, maybe? It might be doing exactly that. It would be interesting to know, though, if you know, if you think back to the German nuclear weapons program during World War II, and Werner Heisenberg, and you know, who ran that program, and he had no intention of arming Adolf Hitler with the nuclear weapon. I kind of wonder: Are there folks within the Russian? you know, defense establishment who are acting similarly to Warner Heisenberg and trying to make sure, you know, Vladimir Putin doesn't quite get all the things that he wants, uh, which, you know, from an American perspective, I, I couldn't imagine Americans doing that kind of stuff to impede our war effort. But uh, that's the difference between a, you know, a Republican system versus an authoritarian system. So it's a interesting thing. So there was a couple other articles that we had that were, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about that last week was North Korea and what they're doing. We've been talking about primarily the Russians. We know what the Chinese are doing. We've covered their rapid expansion. And then we, you know, there's some articles that talk about Chrome Dome, the, the Israeli system, and how well it shoots down mortars and rockets and things of that. You can say Iron Dome. Iron, Iron Dome. Dome. Chrome, sorry. I'm, we were going to correct you. We were going to correct you. Yeah. Curtis and I both tilted our heads. Yeah. <laughs> Iron Dome. Out. Sorry. Sorry. Wrong. wrong that was the, the wrong, uh, wrong, uh, wrong 50, era. Yeah. Wrong era. Uh, so Iron Dome. But the question I have is, as we look at sort of this focus on ICBMs, hypersonics, so we want things that go fast. So we have, a, there's our adversaries have a clear preference for speed. Um, but yet, and because and we're close to being out of time, my question is, I keep wondering why the arms control community in the United States like I said at the beginning, is consistently writing that ICBMs and ballistic missiles are irrelevant and that they're a Cold War relic. And I, I'm just curious why they think that, but the Russians, the North Koreans, 
and the Chinese are focusing on the development of those very weapons. Do either of you guys have an answer for that one? Because I'm puzzled. Oh, I'll give it a a shot here. So, um, when you're an idealist, you know, you, you see the world as you wish it to be. And if you see a world without ICBMs, you kind of wish them away. Um, and, um, uh, the adversaries see value in ICBM because they are an inexpensive way to cover a lot of the earth and hold it at risk. And, um, uh, I, I think that that is, is the essence of where we are. And, and, and the, the idea of hypersonic glide vehicles coming out of the nose cones, um, uh, of an ICBM is just a further extension of that. Uh, and, you know, we had a chance, uh, to get rid of ICBMs in the eighties, you know, uh, uh, Gorbachev offered Reagan that he would sign a treaty. If you would not do SDI, we would sign a treaty that would, would ban all of the ICBMs. And, but, but Reagan who had become a bit of an idealist in his second term said, no, we, 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 that's not good enough. What about the other countries that have ICBMs that we need to protect from or protect the world from? And we have to have SDI. And so we, we, we might have missed an opportunity there, at least with the Russians. But to Reagan's point, uh, if the Chinese and the North Koreans have ICBMs and no one else does, is the world necessarily a safer place? Jim? Yeah, so, well, you, you got to remember, I'm the get ugly early guy. Um, as you can tell why I'm on podcast and not video, but anyway, um, <laughs> you know, I, my answer is always the same. I look forward to a world where the lion and the lamb lie down together. As long as I'm the lion, I'm fine with that. <laughs> well, I, you a, vegeta- know, a vegetarian lion. Is that what it is? <laughs> it, it makes me wonder if, uh, the, the folks in the disarmament community believe in the prosperity gospel, you know, where you name it and claim it and uh, you just say peace and we're going to have peace. And, you know, maybe that's uh, maybe that's the approach they're taking is, is if they say it's irrelevant, then it becomes irrelevant. But in the end, our ICBM fleet here is the cheapest of the three legs by far, by far. And obviously the most responsive, the, 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 the quickest. And many think that that's what makes it the most stabilizing um, of, of the three. So uh, again, if you're, if you're purely counting dollars, um, uh, you get more uh, bang for your buck, no pun intended, eh, maybe some pun intended, uh, out of the ICBM fleet than you would out of the others. Kurt, Curtis, and maybe, maybe I'll, I'll highlight that financial piece in that, you know, our missile defense or our, our, our ICBM fleet has long, been long overdue for an upgrade and we've put it off and we put it off and we put it off. So we've saved money in that inexpensive piece, but there comes a point at which you've got to pay. And maybe that's where people say, oh, look, it's a big expense, you know, staring you in the face. You know, it's just like my uh, my car. If I don't do what it needs to do and drive it, I always drive all my cars till the wheels fall off, but eventually I've got to do something, replace, you know, wholesale engine transmission, you know, et cetera. 
And that's where we are. And we need to do it, but our adversaries are taking advantage of this. And it's the and that's the problem that we're seeing right now. We can't allow that to happen because deterrence fails. And maybe this answers Adam's question, because now you look historically, when do our adver- our adversaries were not, you know, being as aggressive, especially, you know, even even Russia, um, uh, the Soviet Union, even uh, back in the late 80s. They weren't taking us on from a nuclear standpoint. They, you know, and China obviously wasn't. They waited. They bided their time until we got to the point where we needed to update. And now they get ahead of us, which is an interesting strategy. Uh, we can't let ourselves do this again. Yeah. Unfortunately, we're out of time. But I did want to say as we uh, exit the show that I've been doing some thinking. Maybe we can talk about this on a future episode. And I'm now convinced that ICBMs are the most resilient and secure leg of, of the triad. Uh, I don't, it's not submarines. I have some reasons for that. And it's not bombers. It's, it's actually ICBMs, but we'll save that for another episode. Of course, you've been listening to the latest and greatest episode of this thing we call the nuclear view. Of course, I am Adam Lowther with Jim Petrosky and Curtis McGiffin. And as always at NIDS, we want to remind you to think deterrence. Thank you for listening to this week's The Nuclear View. We hope you found it engaging and valuable. The Nuclear View is released each Wednesday and is a production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, a 501c3 organization. We are dependent upon donations to provide our podcasts. Every donation helps keep this and many other deterrence-related activities happening and helps to bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and of our national deterrence. We occasionally answer questions from our valued listeners. If you wish to send us questions on a topic, please send your email to asknids at thinkdeterrence.com. That's asknids, one word, the at symbol, and thinkdeterrenceoneword.com. If you enjoyed this show, check out our other weekly podcast, Nuclear Knowledge. You can catch all of our podcasts at thinkdeterrence.com under the Deterrence Podcast tab. We thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative nuclear view where we want to advance peace promote stability, and remind you to always think deterrence.